uh, Joshua. And uh, the book of Joshua, we saw the main theme of Joshua is the faithfulness of God that God will not fail to fulfill every one of his good promises, that the Israelites, that God promised that they would be a great nation, and he did just as he said he would. He made them into a great nation. He promised that, that he would bring them, uh, use them to bring blessing to the nations, and he did so just as he said. And now the Israelites, uh, in the book of Joshua, they stand at the foot of the promised land, and, and, and he is going to give this land to them just as he promised. And so Joshua is really the pinnacle of God's faithfulness to his people. And we saw even as they go into the promised land, the Israelites miraculously pass through the Jordan River. Uh, they have the victory over the fortified city of Jericho. Uh, God teaches them a lesson about the, the city of Ai, and eventually they're able to, to conquer that city. And basically at this point, you get this sense that nothing stands in Joshua's way of, as God continues to give the promised land. Uh, to the people of Israel. And this actually brings us to one of the um, most unusual events in the book of Joshua. And it presents, actually, this chapter uh, presents a, a, a particular challenge in terms of interpretation and application. And Joshua chapter 9 covers what we call the, the what is, happens is the peace treaty between Israel and the people of Gibeon. And it's really a, a very, very strange passage. You'll see it as we start reading it. Uh, it's difficult because the choices that are made and the actions of the Gibeonites and the Israelites are actually kind of morally ambiguous. Uh, in fact, actually, you, you know, you look at it and say, oh, I can't tell if they're actually doing what's right or doing what's wrong. And actually, you look at it and say, actually, they're kind of doing things that are wrong, but yet God still seems to be using their actions to move his plan forward. And we're wondering, like, is he blessing them? Is he cursing them? What's going on here? So it's really kind of hard to figure out. And uh, really, this week, I was kind of struggling with this passage and was reading other books and trying to figure out, you know, what do we do with this passage? How do we uh, figure this out? In fact, there's part of me saying, I should just skip this because most people don't even n n realize that this is in Joshua. But actually, if you read through Joshua, you can say, hey, Pastor Harrison, you skipped chapter 9. So uh, I want to go through this. And basically, uh, as I was looking at this, as praying through this, um, I want to propose that as we look at this, as we think about the fact that Joshua is, is about God, and it's about his faithfulness, that as we look at this main idea, that the, the idea of Joshua chapter 9 is really um, God's heart to save. God's heart to save. And so I'd like you to turn with me to Joshua chapter 9, verse 1. Joshua chapter 9, verse 1. And a reverence for the word of God, let's all stand together. So reading from verse 1. As soon as all the kings who were beyond the Jordan in the hill country and the lowlands and all along the coast of the great sea toward Lebanon, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites heard of this, meaning the, the conquest of, of Jericho and Ai, they gathered together as one to fight against Joshua and, the, and Israel. But when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and Ai, they on their part acted with cunning and went and made ready provisions, took worn out sacks for their donkeys and wineskins and worn and torn and mended with worn out patches, patched sandals on their feet and worn out clothing. And all their provisions were dry and crumbly. And they went to Joshua in the camp of Gilgal and said to him and to the men of Israel, we have come from a distant country. 
So now make a covenant with us. But the men of Israel said to the Hivites, perhaps you live among us. How can we make a covenant with you? And they said to Joshua, we are your servants. And Joshua said to them, who are you and where do you come from? And they said to him, from a very distant country, your servants have come. And because of the name of the Lord your God, for we have heard the report of him and all that he did in Egypt and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon the king of Heshbon and Og the king of Bashan who lived in Ash- Ashtaroth. And so the elders and all the inhabitants of our country said to us, take provisions in your hand for the journey to go and journey to meet them and say to them, we are your servants. Come now and make a covenant with us. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Sorry, I'm having a little trouble here. As we look at this passage, we're going to, as you read this passage, of course you can see some of the problems <laughs> in this particular passage. Like, how does this work? And uh, just to give a summary of some of the problems of, of trying to figure out the Gibeonites. First of all, the Gibeonites recognize that God is the true God. They're actually seeking his mercy, but they do so through deception, right? They're, they're trying to lie to get God's mercy. They actually receive God's mercy, but they do it by lying. So that's kind of a really weird situation. Second thing, Israel extends mercy to the Gibeonites, but it says that they do so without consulting the will of God. They don't ask God. So we don't know whether what they're doing is right or what they're doing is wrong. What they're doing is what God wants or what they're doing is what God doesn't want. Okay, so it's not clear in the passage. Third thing, God spares the Gibeonites from destruction, but we'll see that they end up being servants of Israel consigned to menial work in the temple, that that's gonna be their life. You know, we say they're, they're saved, but you're gonna use the, spend the rest of your life and, and your, uh, your, your, your children, children, and et cetera, they're gonna serve in the temple. So there's lots of questions when you look at this passage, like what the heck, why is this in here? Did the Gibeonites do the right thing? No, they lied. So then we say, well, why were they spared then? Why, did God, why didn't God just say, hey, they're lying, uh, kill them, they're Canaanites? Did the Israelites do the right thing? The text makes it really clear. They didn't consult the Lord. They didn't follow God's perfect will. And yet, their negligence led to the salvation of an entire people, sparing their lives. So we're like, well, wait, how does that work? Did God want them all to die? Or did God want them all to be saved? And finally, the Gibeonites are blessed by God, but yet consigned to perpetual servitude. And in fact, uh, uh, Joshua, when they find out what happens, he says, I curse you, and you're gonna be cursed uh, for the rest of your lives, and the curse is to serve the Lord for the rest of your life, which is really weird, because you say, okay, we're cursed by God, but basically the curse is, first of all, we don't die, okay, we're not gonna get slaughtered like the rest of the Canaanites, but not only that, Oh my gosh, we get to serve the Lord for the rest of our lives in the temple. How awful. I mean, and you say, well, what, what the heck? You know, how do you understand this particular passage? What is going on here? Is this really what God wants? Are the Israelites doing the right thing? Are the Gibeonites truly blessed? And so we see that this is a very um, perplexing situation. Well, what are we supposed to learn from this passage? Um, I do believe that, that this passage makes sense when we look at it through the lens of God's heart to save. 
and what that really means for us as a people. See, now the first thing we're going to see in this uh, regarding God's heart to save is God's compassion for the condemned. Because even if you look at, if you step back from all the details, you know, you're looking at what all the people are doing and it's kind of crazy. They're lying, they're, they're, they're you know, being foolish and all sorts of stuff. But even despite all what the people are doing, what really is happening is God is working to save the Gibeonites, the entire people, from, from otherwise they would be subject to death and destruction. And so they're saved. And, and so we, we think about this and say, well, so what do we learn about God's compassion? Well, first of all, we learn that life is very complicated. People don't always do the right things. And even when we do the right things, we don't always do them with the pure motives here, right? And we mess up all the time. We don't consult God in the things we do sometimes. And, and, and yet at the same time, we look at this and say, well, we look at this as real clear, the Gibeonites and the Israelites, I mean, they just did not do the right things, back and forth, all these things. But yet here in Joshua 9, we see that despite our limitations and our failings, God's heart is to save those who would otherwise suffer eternity in hell, would otherwise be eliminated from this earth and never, you know, basically never on this earth again. God is on mission to rescue those who are reserved for destruction, and he's faithful to save, regardless of all the mess that we make. I mean, sometimes as Christians, like I said, we... We don't consult God before we do things, right? Even as a church, maybe we don't consult God when we do things, just like the Israelites. Sometimes we make messes, right? We act selfishly or according to our own wisdom, and, and we wonder, and sometimes I wonder, after all these things, wow, how does God still do his will in us, in me? And yet he does. God still does his will. Now, of course, this is not to excuse us to say be lazy or anything like that because God obviously in his word says don't lie, that lying is a terrible thing. God, uh, you know, says that we should consult him, that we should seek his face in everything that we do. Um, so, so it's not the idea that, that as Christians we should just do whatever we want to do and it doesn't matter. But what the lesson here, I believe, is, is, about, um, is about pride, I mean, it's clear here that the Gibeonites did not deserve God's salvation. Why should they, and then we ask this question, you know, the Gibeonites are saved at the end of the chapter, or at the, you know, at the next chapter, actually, they're saved physically. And we say, well, but God, why should a lying, deceitful, cunning people be saved? Why? They were not pure and righteous. They were not a pure and righteous people. They did not deserve to be saved. Um, <clears throat> they did not come humbly before God and ask for forgiveness in order to be saved. They were a people who worked out a pretty elaborate plan to deceive Joshua and get a deal. That's the Gibeonites, right? They were not deserving, and yet they still received God's love and grace. And we say, man, what's up with that? See, this actually reminds me of one of the parables that Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 20. And this is like 
the parable of the master of the vineyard. And this is like the parable that drives everybody crazy, especially those who are like justice people. This, this one just drives everybody crazy. Uh, Matthew chapter 20 is basically Jesus tells this parable. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like this master who goes out into his vineyard and he hires laborers promising to pay them a denarius if they go out and work for a day. So he goes out and hires some people at 6 a.m. in the morning. They go out at 6 a.m. and they start working. And then he goes out again at 9 a.m. and goes and hires a second group of people. And he promises them to pay them a denarius as well. And so they go out and work at 9 a.m. And then there's still more work to be done. So he goes out at 3, o'clock, uh, 3 p.m. and he hires a third group of workers. And he says, you know, I'll pay you a denarius if you go out and work in the field. And so they go out and work in the field. And then so the day's over. All three groups come back, get their pay. Third group, who was the group that was hired last, um, they get their denarius, which is about $100. So they each get a denarius. Second group comes. And they each get a denarius, just as God promised, just as the uh, master promised. Third group comes back, who was hired at 6 a.m. Okay, so they were working, uh, they were working at least you know three to to nine hours more than the other workers, and they get paid hundred dollars each denarius, and they get mad, and they say to the master, "We work so hard." And this is unfair. And they say, why do you, and they literally say, why do you make them equal to us? Because we deserve more. We're better. And we worked harder. And so it's not fair that those who worked less get the same as we do. And the master replies to them. He says, why are you upset? For you agreed to work for denarius and you got your denarius. So what do you have to say regarding how I choose to pay my workers? And then Jesus ends his parable. And everybody's going like, man, that drives me crazy. Man, I hope I was, if it was me, I would be the third. And if I was the 6 a.m. people, I'd be really ticked off. I'd be really ticked off. Because that's not fair. What's Jesus saying? Jesus saying God's not fair? God is, is, is just does whatever he wants? See, when we say, okay, well, what, what's the point of this parable? Well, what's God trying to say? Jesus is teaching about pride. He says, that, that, this is why we get mad, is when God treats certain people as equal to us, equal to me. The implication being, God, I think that I deserve to be treated better than them. We say, well, I came to receive Jesus Christ as a child, and I spent so much time following Jesus, and I humbled myself before God, responded in the proper way. I did all the things that God asked me to do. I did everything that I deserved, and, and, and I deserve to be treated better by God than those who come in the last hour, those who, who did all these crazy things and, 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 were, and didn't really honor God and they accepted God at the last minute or just lately. And, and, and why, God, are you uh, blessing them as well? Uh, they're spiritually lazy. They don't do as much uh, for you as I do. Um, they aren't as zealous for righteousness as I have been. God, why do you treat them equal to me? And Jesus had some strong words in response to those workers. 
And he said, am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my grace, my generosity? And so the last shall be first, and the first shall be last. This is a very difficult lesson to learn. Because again, in and of ourselves as human beings, we, we have this sense that if I did more, I deserve more. And, and, but, but, but this is God's compassion for the condemned. This is his heart to save. He saved the Gibeonites from utter destruction even when they don't deserve it. And people will read this and say, man, the Gibeonites, they lied. Boy, when, when the rest of the kings find out and attack them, uh, they're going to get killed and they deserve it. And God shouldn't help them. And the Israelites shouldn't lift a finger to help them because they lied and they deceived their way and they don't deserve salvation and they don't deserve God's love and they don't deserve God to save them because of their actions, because of the people that they're like. And, and, and I feel like this is God reminding us um, that he has a compassion for the condemned. Um, I was reading uh, Psalm 103, and this led me to Psalm 103, just, just praying over this and, and being reminded of the love of God, that this is the heart that God wants us to have as we look at the world around us, the people around us who are dying without Jesus Christ. He says, praise the Lord, O my soul, and all my inmost being, praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, my God, forget not his benefits, who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases, who redeemed your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion, who satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like eagles. This is what God has done for us through Jesus Christ. Uh, the Lord works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his deeds to the people of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. And here's the thing, verse nine, he will not always accuse he will not harbor his anger forever. Verse 10, for he does not treat us, he does not treat us as our sins deserve. He does not repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us? And I kept reading this over and over again. He does not treat us as our sins deserve. He does not repay us according to our iniquities. And I, I thought about that, just prayed about it for myself. God does not treat me um, as my sin deserves. God does not repay me according to the things that I have done in my life. And now God calls us to say, I want you to act towards others with this same heart. This heart of God that must be displayed in his people. And we must ask ourselves, you know, who are the Gibeonites in my life right now? You know, the question is, when do I 
complain? When do I look at others and say, God, you know, why are they getting this and that? And, you know, I really think I deserve better than that. Or why is it that they are not honoring God and yet uh, they get certain things or, or they get certain uh, recognition and I don't get that? Uh, uh, or, you know, why is it that, you know, uh, I'm having trouble with this person or that person? It could be a giving at, at, at work or at school or at church where we look at that person and say, you know what? Um, I don't know why things are going so well for them because, you know, I deserve better than them. I deserve more because of who I am and what I've done for God and I'm better than, I'm a better Christian than they are. I've done more for God than they have. I take God's word more seriously than they do. I don't do the things that they do. I'm disgusted with the things that they do. And so I think I'm better than them. And God is saying through this, through the Gibeonites, to say God's, this is God's compassion for the condemned. And he's asking us to show this compassion and love towards the people around us, towards, and we have them at work, at school, the people that drive us crazy, the people that hurt us, the people that do things that we would never do, say things that we would never say. And yet God says, you, we look back at this and say, not, oh, I'm glad I'm better than them. But we look back and we say, thank God that he does not treat me as my sins deserve. He does not count my iniquity against me anymore. So why can't I show that to other people? Second thing we see about the heart of God is facing the lost. That is putting a face to the lost. It's interesting, you note uh, Joshua chapter 9 with the Gibeonites is very similar in structure to Joshua chapter 2 the story of Rahab. Rahab, as we remember, if you were here a few weeks ago, Rahab was a prostitute living in the city of Jericho. And she used deception to barter her salvation and got the Israelite spies to commit themselves not to harm her. She bargained with them, right? She said, I saved your life. I'm going to put a bargain with you. Uh, save my life. And this is very similar to what happens in the Gibeonites, although the Gibeonites also lied. I mean, they used deception, but they used deception in a different way. But you look at verse 1. It says, as soon as all the kings who were beyond the Jordan and the hill country um, and the lowlands and the great sea toward Lebanon, he says, they gathered together as one to fight against Joshua and the Israelites. So we see that besides the Gibeonites, you have Canaan as a whole, and they are determined to resist and fight against God. And then in verse 3, it says, but the inhabitants of Gibeon, which is a small tribe, or actually it's not a small tribe, they're actually a very strong tribe. They heard what Joshua had done in Jericho, and they acted with cunning. Now, here's the thing. The Gibeonites are people who are lost, who are terrified who are desperately trying to find a life and secure a future for themselves and their children. Okay, they know that they're, if they don't do something, they're all going to die. 
and they choose to act with trickery. But yet, just like in Rahab's case, they receive God's mercy and salvation. See, one of the things that's interesting about when you look at Jericho and the Gibeonites, um, God focuses, he always, in, in the narrative, he'll, he'll talk about a, a large set of people, and then he'll talk about a very small subset within that people. You have basically the whole city of Jericho that's tightly shut, and, and they're, they're trying to find out who the spies are so they can kill them, you know, and, and, and fight the Israelites, and yet within that whole city, there's one person in that city who's desperate to find salvation. That's Rahab, and she finds it. And now again, you have all the tribes of Canaan joining together to fight against God. They say, we've seen all these things, we've seen these miracles, but despite that, we're gonna join together and we're gonna resist these people coming in to take our land. And they join together and they wanna fight, and then you have the Gibeonites who are that one small subset of the crowd who say, I want to be saved. I want to live. And, and, and we see here that, that, that God says, even though there's a large group of people that are this way, there's still Rahab. There's still the Gibeonites that I want to save. See, it's very easy to lack compassion when we don't put a face on the lost. You know, we live in church so long that we don't see, we always see the world as us Christians and those people. And, and, and if we're not willing to go out and, and really know them and talk to them, uh, we're always going to be separate. Now, I don't get political, but be a little political here, okay? Immigration laws, my thought, okay, I'll just say a thought. <laughs> if someone breaks the law in our country, they're a criminal. So why should they have a right when their children are separated from them? It's just like a criminal. They come to the country, they take a risk. No criminal going to jail would claim the right to say, I need to have my children with me. No criminal would, would ever do that, right? So it's easy to say that when you don't see a face. And then I think of my neighbors, and I wonder, the neighbors who we've lived by for at least 10, 20, 10, 15 years now, all their children, three families, Maybe some of the parents are not. I don't know. I don't ask. But the thought of taking the parents away from these children, um, it suddenly makes it very hard for me just to say, doesn't matter. Now again, I'm not saying what political side, which political side we go on or which one is right or wrong, but I'm saying that, hey, when we 
when we don't put a face on the lost, when we don't think about those who are really lost, uh, uh, it's easy to lack compassion. It's easy to say, oh, well, they just do that. Until we really get to see that these are people who are hurting, they are scared, they are desperately looking for hope in a world that, 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 that is hopeless and dark. They're looking for hope in places that's never gonna provide them hope, never, sal- never provide them salvation. It could be you know, the Muslim, it could be the Buddhist, it could be the Hindus, it could be the proud, uh, ambitious co-workers, it could be the single moms, but we must soften our hearts, we must see the face of the lost, understand their desperation, and not just see them as, oh, that group of people. We say, well, that group of people lie to us. They take advantage of us. They hurt us. But when we keep looking to the heart of God, we will see within that group that there are Rahabs and there are Gibeonites who are simply scared and desperate and God wants to save them through you and me. As we see this, God's compassion uh, for the condemned, uh, putting a face on the lost. The last thing we want to see is the blessing of surrender. Verse four, we see the Gibeonites sent emissaries to Joshua. They're disguised as travelers uh, with wines. I mean, they, they really go all out. In verse six, it says, we've come from a distant country, so now make a covenant with us. Joshua says, where are you from again? From a distant, they say, from a distant country. They don't say where they're from. Okay, they could have said anything, but they just say, we're from a uh, distant country. Now, we don't know whether the Gibeonites understood Mosaic law, but under the Mosaic law, this is really interesting. Under the Mosaic law, there's a distinction between foreigners and the occupants of Canaan. The occupants of Canaan are to be destroyed. God said they are sinful, they're to be destroyed. But foreigners, if they come and ask for a, a treaty that you are supposed to uh, greet them with peace. And so whether or not the Gibeonites knew this or not, they touched on that law. And it says, so the men, meaning the Israelites, took some of their provisions, they didn't, and it says they didn't ask counsel from the Lord, and Joshua made a covenant with them and let them live. So this is not just saying, you know, okay, you guys can go. They made a legal binding agreement not only to spare their lives, but to obligate themselves to rescue them whenever they're in danger. Verse 16, three days later, the deception of the Gibeonites discovered, but it's too late. The covenant is, is, is made. The people of Israel are murmuring and saying, you know, why are we doing this for? Let's just kill them anyways. It wasn't our true covenant because we didn't know what was going on. But Joshua replies to them in verse 19. He says, we have sworn to them by the Lord that the God of Israel, and now we may not touch them. This we will do to them. Let them live lest wrath be upon us because of the oath we swore to them. And then he says, um, you are cursed Some of you shall never be anything but servants and cutters of wood and drawers of water in the house of the Lord. Now again, this is really a curse compared to, you know, death. Um, Is it a curse to be saved from death? Is it a curse to literally, they serve the most high God in the temple. And the Gibeonites look at this and they say, "Um, we are in your hand. 
Whatever seems good and right in your sight to do to us, do it. This is in sense, they're saying this to God because they know, hey, we're exposed, we lied, you can't kill us. Whatever you think is right to do, we will now uh, accept that. But this is really a statement of surrender. Now chapter nine, it, uh, this whole chapter, God is not really mentioned in this chapter. Um, we don't really know what God's feelings are about what went on. We don't know if God led the Gibeonites there. We don't know if God was happy that the Israelites did this. But in chapter 10, regardless of how God thinks about these things, which he doesn't say, but in verse 10, we see that God actually accepts the Gibeonites' confession of surrender. And he is faithful to them. And that's really, again, a really strange part of this chapter, but it's a part of this chapter. Verse chapter 10, it says, Adonai Zedek, uh, Adonai Zedek the, king, the, the, the Canaanite king of Jerusalem, heard that this treaty between the Gibeonites and the Israelites had been done, so he gathers the kings and says, we're not gonna go after the Israelites, let's go after the Gibeonites first, and we'll get them and let them know that if you side with the, you know, we're gonna make you pay for this. And the reader might look at this and say, well, there you go. Um, God's not obligated to honor his co covenant and see what happens to the Gibeonites. You know, they lied and they tried to do this and, and God's gonna let them have it now. They don't deserve God's loyalty. They don't deserve God's faithfulness. But we see in chapter 10 that God does not abandon those whom he promises to protect. And, and we think of this too, just think of this personally. Despite my own selfishness and sin, despite all the things that I do, and maybe even the time when I first received Jesus Christ as Savior, maybe it wasn't really completely pure. I mean, maybe I was thinking, I just want to be saved from hell. I wasn't thinking about the glory of Jesus Christ. My, my motives were not pure. But yet God says, uh, regardless of, of whatever weaknesses and deficiencies you have, I am faithful to my promise to save anyone who surrenders to me. See, this is the blessing of complete surrender. The Gibeonites surrendered to God, said, do with us whatever you will. And then when they cry out for help, Joshua, quote, God, the same, you know, Joshua representing God, he does not hesitate to respond and rescue. Joshua doesn't say, well, let's let them sweat it out a little bit and make them regret lying to us. No, they actually go immediately to rescue them. And, and, and where they are, the Gibeonites, is not close by. They, the, the, Joshua and his men march 25 miles up some very difficult terrain, steep ascent, to get to Gibeon and fights for them and rescues them, and God even gets in the act, and God rains hailstones on the enemies as they're trying to escape, and this is that famous uh, passage where God causes the sun to stand still. Remember that God causes the sun to stand still? And so God himself revealed his mighty hand to perform miracles to save the Gibeonites. So if there's any question, what does God think about the Gibeonites? Does he care about them? Is he gonna be faithful to them? Is he mad at them for the things that they did? Uh, th there's no question here, God is faithful. He saved them. He ran immediately uh, to save them. In fact, uh, in, in the future, we see that, that God continues to be faithful to the Gibeonites, that they never uh, present a threat or a problem to the Israelites. In fact, in Nehemiah chapter three and chapter seven, it mentions several Gibeonites, um, particularly 
by name who helped in the rebuilding of the wall of Jerusalem. So they actually receive honor as a part of the nation of Israel, as a part of the fears of God. And so even these deceptive Gibeonites, when they surrendered to the rule and authority of God, um, God remained faithful to them. It's wonderful. God uh, climbed mountains for them. God trekked 25 miles just to save them. And he stretched out his mighty hand and extended the day itself to completely eliminate the threat in their lives. That's how faithful God is. He is not obligated. He was not obligated to the Gibeonites to do anything for them but he was committed to them. This is the same thing for us. God is not obligated to do anything for us, but he's committed. He's committed to climb those mountains, to trek those miles. For each one of us, he not only did it for our salvation, but he will do it for every moment in our life because we are his precious child and he's committed to us. So we, we look at this and um, we learn that, that indeed, um, God is faithful. He, 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 he is faithful beyond anything that we can understand and ever deserve. This is one, as we think about, you know, what do we learn from this passage? God's heart always remains constant. He wants to save every single person who is doomed for destruction, doomed for judgment. He will never fail to respond to those who desperately and humbly seek his salvation and his peace. And he will indeed stretch out his mighty hand on your behalf, on my behalf, not because because he owes us, but because he is faithful to his promise. That's the God we serve. Second thing we see is God calls us to have a heart, have this same heart of God in us as we look to others. That, that the, the idea or the, 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 the idea to say, I deserve more than this person, or more than this group, or I'm better, or God owes me. Even the words, those people, and, and, and that group, or that kind of person, these are not compatible. These are not the vocabulary of the grace of God in what he calls us to do. Now let's go ahead and let's just spend some time in prayer. Let's, let's just come before the Lord. And we'll just pray.